0: Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous birthful library. Happy listening. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer, but they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny King. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about infant sleep. There are so many opinions and judgments around how and where infants should sleep that it can be really hard to figure out what would work best for your family. How did we get here? What are an infant's biological sleep needs? What risk factors should you consider when setting up your baby's sleep environment? And is bed sharing as dangerous as we are led to believe? Dr. James McKenna has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Birthful. And if what you hear is helpful, do make sure you subscribe. It is free and that way you will not miss a thing. All right, so my guest today is biological anthropologist Dr. James McKenna, author of the new book Safe Infant Sleep. And the book is an amazing read that I highly recommend. Until very recently, Dr. McKenna was also the director of the Mother-Baby Behavioral Sleep Laboratory at the University of Notre Dame, which is the first and only lab in the United States to study the physiology and behavior of co-sleeping mothers and infants. In fact, he directed the lab for 22 years before retiring recently. So Dr. McKenna is widely considered to be the leading authority on breastfeeding in relation to SIDS and bed sharing safety. And I cannot think of anyone better to talk to about infant sleep. So let's get to it. Welcome, Dr. McKenna. I am so thrilled to have you here on the episode today.
1: Well, thank you, Adriana. I'm excited to be here.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I'm a biological anthropologist. I should start with that. That is a field that looks very eclectically at the origins and evolution of humankind, attempts to characterize who we are as a species, to look at the various reasons why we seem to acquire these amazing characteristics that I'll be talking about and why our babies are born so neurologically immature, and what we had to do about it as a evolving societies, etc. I can tell you a little bit about how I originally was uh, looking at monkeys and apes. Interested in the ecology, why do certain parenting systems develop over other parenting systems? Most monkeys carry their babies everywhere they go, and the baby's bodies reflect that degree of tactile need and what I call physiological regulation. Um, suggesting that for all primates, of course, um, being carried and touched, and as we will be talking about, co-sleeping, isn't just a nice social idea. It's actually part of the whole adaptive expectation of all primate babies, but human infants take it to the extreme, as I'll be explaining.
0: Well, and I think that's key in terms of if we look at what humans do, right? Because I get questions from listeners and from the doula clients that I work with, and the huge concern is always like where babies should sleep. And we've got, on one hand, biology, and I'm sure you'll explain it to us more, is telling us that we should sleep with our babies. You know, there's that need and attraction, and wanting to hold each other. And then we've got society and experts saying, don't you dare sleep with your baby, your baby should sleep alone and on their back, and always in their crib, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the, on the third side, you've got the American Academy of Pediatrics saying, well, your baby should sleep in your room, uh-huh. <laughs> be in close, prox- in tempting proximity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. For at least six months to one year. So all of this creates a really, struggle for parents and so why don't we tackle those three areas in terms of biology why is this pull because if we didn't have this pull for biology then it would be a no-brainer to have babies alone on their back in their crib and you know they'd be lucky to be in the room (laughs) so what 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 is that biology why is that need
1: well it's very old goes back 40 million years. I mean, it probably goes back 200 million years when we talk about the origin of the mammals. We're breastfeeders. We have this inherent biological connection. The only way our babies would have survived throughout eons of prehistory, as well as history, is by virtue of the connection, the um, beautiful liquid gold that we call breast milk. And the only way you can feed your baby is to have your baby relatively close. And when it comes to human beings, Um, Our milk is exquisitely designed for a very immature intestinal system and gut system and digestive system of babies. It's composed of fast burning, fast calorie burning, a lot of sugar, lactose, of course, um, and uh, not particularly high amount of fat or protein, which means our babies, even more so than the non-human primates, have to feed more regularly with very short intervals between the feeds. And in a sense, that is the um, primary uh, motivation, aside from the fact that babies navigate and have a lot to do with where they end up sleeping. Um, They don't know why they're searching for that feeling that comes with being close to mother, but it's certainly powerful and it's a survival instinct that babies have to be contact seekers. And that's what they do very, very well. And their mothers and their fathers are designed to respond to what babies want and need. Now let me correct myself. I just used the word want And I shouldn't have used that word because babies don't have wants. They're only they only have needs. And at this point for human babies. From the first year of their life, and particularly the first month in that first transition, they're as close to their genes as they'll ever get as a human being. That is, they're finding direct expression. Babies don't know why they're doing what they're doing, but their genes do. And those babies' bodies require and need that contact to, to supplement their inability to thermoregulate, to keep warm, um, they need that touch um, critical for the release of hormones and endorphins in babies, and you know feeding their emotional needs for that contact, just like the old Harlow monkeys when the the monkey preferred to have the cuddly um, terry cloth mother without any milk as opposed to the steel rim substitute mother. Um, that these monkeys were forced to kind of adjust to. And it was supposed to be the fact that, oh, it's all about the milk. It wasn't about the milk. Even for non-human primate monkey babies, it was about the cuddly contact comfort, as Harlow called it. And our human babies just take that need to a greater extent, because at birth, our babies are born neurologically the least mature primate of all the slowest developing and the most reliant on their mother's bodies to physiologically regulate their breathing, their heart rate, their blood pressure, their hormonal releases. And this is not just a, as I was mentioning, nice social idea. This is an expectation, biological expectation. And don't think for a minute that both mothers and fathers are not hormonally primed to provide immediately this instantaneous care that babies require to be brought to the mother. So what's happened in our culture historically is um, that when breastfeeding started coming back about 20 or 30 years ago, it automatically set in place a system that is millions of years old you can't have (laughs) breastfeeding without the baby you can't have the breastfeeding without the mother and so that is why you probably would be asking about i coined this term called breast sleeping because i realized that there was no maternal sleep architecture Um, there was no infant sleep architecture or patterns of how many minutes you're in this stage of sleep versus this stage of sleep and there was no breastfeeding pattern except in relationship to all of these domains, mother, infant, and how breastfeeding unfolds in that context. And so the major reason why, regardless of what the American Academy of Pediatrics has says or what public health officials say, mothers and babies find each other because that's how the system is designed to work, to give satisfaction and emotional benefits to both mother and infant alike. And often the fathers that are supporting them, and it's what calms babies. That's what they, mm. how they reflect what they need.
0: And we should say that in your work at Notre Dame, you were your lab was a sleep lab where you did research on the patterns of sleep of mother and baby dyad. So you've been looking at this, the dyad sleeping together and their patterns to really get at the core of this for oh, decades, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I hate to think of how long I've been doing it. It shocks me. It started about 30 years ago, but the laboratory in Notre Dame started in the fall of 97. Um, the original work, I should give credit to where credit is due, was at UC Irvine School of Medicine, um, where I worked with an, an array of beautiful, wonderful colleagues, Sarah Moscow. Um, was one of the key people, Clay Dungy, um walked into an office at UC Berkeley or UC uh, um, Irvine. I was uh, in the neurobiology and pediatric combined department uh, teaching uh, part-time medical students. I was a professor at Pomona at that point. And they had a sleep lab there. And after my own son was born, Adriana, Joanna and I, my wife, read like all parents, even though I'd been studying primates, this is the funny part, ran to the bookstores to read all about how do you raise a perfect little human creature and give them all the love and affection you can. And my wife, who is also an anthropologist, both of us were led to either one of two conclusions. One, either everything we had learned in anthropology, including my biological a knowledge from looking at human evolution and psychobiology of parenting um, was all wrong, or that all of these recommendations about how best to care for baby babies had literally nothing to do with babies at all. And everything to do with very recent social cultural ideologies about how babies should be raised, which literally had nothing to do with who they were from a biological perspective. And so my wife and I were rather shocked and that was the beginning of me thinking gee i wonder if sudden infant death syndrome this supposed mysterious you know baby killer has anything to do which, with what amounts to a tremendous deprivation for any primate that is without its mother's body regulating this immaturity this physiological need for regulation um and without breast milk and without the delivery of it which of course assures this constant stream of amazing sensory exchanges going on between the mother and the baby getting back to the term where the baby is regulating the mother's body and that determines how the mother is sleeping and her physiological systems and the mother is regulating the baby's body how it sleeps through the night, how the metabolism of the breast milk and the breast milk delivery through all those rich sensory experiences, which really entails things like the mother's chest moving up and down, the heat radiating from her body, the the waifs and the, the smells of her breast milk, the actual touch of her skin that's stimulating the baby's body and the brain, the sweet messages verbal vocal that the mother exhibits to the baby through through the night her breath even the feel of the air on the baby's face and believe me these this is what the baby's body is sensitized to experience this isn't just a weird little breeze hitting the baby's cheek along with it comes little boluses of carbon dioxide that the baby breathes in that goes right to the baby's blood and nervous system that stimulates the phrenic nerve to get rid of carbon dioxide and to pull in more oxygen. So there isn't a sensory system or domain that isn't really party to this sweet, this micro environment that's being created by the sensory engagement. And of course, let's not forget what is the end product here. It's the baby being able to take this incredibly important incomparable substance into its body, particularly designed For that baby's immune system and for that baby's needs to grow at a certain rate that baby's brain to develop at a certain rate
0: so what you're saying is when they're sleeping together the the breastfeeding parent and the baby they create a sort of almost an ecosystem between the two of them that is very reactive and then has them even keep you know be there, they're almost one where, because a big fear, right, of people who bed share, who sleep on the same surface is I'm not going to hear my baby. I'm going to roll over to my, on my baby. I'm going to suffocate my baby. My baby's going to Like I won't be there to notice what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it seems that what you're saying is you, that both both the people in the dyad are so in tune with each other that th- the reaction of one will immediately elicit a response in the, rea- in the other.
1: Absolutely, absolutely well stated. Um, I like to think of Winnicott's expression, there is no such thing as a baby, there's a baby in someone. And I kind of modify that a little bit to say, there is nothing that a human baby can or cannot do that is not explicable by reference to the mother's body. And I think that's a really interesting message. And my colleague and friend, Dr. Sarah Hurdy, brilliant biological anthropologist writing on mothers, has said that insofar as primates are concerned, the mother is the environment. And I think all of those ways are a way of describing what you really quite beautifully, Adriana, described, That the baby and the mother become one with each other in terms of a physiological system, which yet again, comes back to the term breast sleeping, a concept I talk about in the safe infant sleep answers to your co-sleeping questions a great deal because that 30 years of research permits me to move beyond just speculation and saying pretty things, you know, uh, about the biology of human uh, mother, baby interactions. We have, documented to this very issue, the ability of mothers to pull themselves out of the deepest levels of sleep, stage four sleep, if their baby not only makes a strange corkle, charcoal noise, or something different, or the baby doesn't continue to make the kinds of sounds during sleep that it typically makes. Don't forget that we always talk about the capacity to sleep as the ultimate goal in our culture. I think even to a a negative degree is pushing uh, quantitative numbers of hours we must to get good sleep or our bodies fall apart and it can be related to all kinds of pathologies. But one of the greatest gifts that uh, God or whoever uh, biology gave us is the ability on a dime to wake up because throughout our history the ability not to be aroused and to be sensitive to what's going on the external environment, um would make the difference between us surviving or not we have in the wild in which human sleep actually emerged and developed there were nasty insects and ground dwelling objects that you don't want to have bite you there's all kinds of predators and the night is kind of a scary time at least particularly for nocturnal carnivores etc we have to be and we're in need of having that sense during our sleep to evacuate from a sleep site if need be, from smells, just as we do presently today. We have a tremendous sense of what's going on in the environment, even though we are able to go through these various stages where it does become increasingly more difficult to arouse, to respond to these side external cues that might be dangerous to ourselves as well as to our babies but certainly i've watched hundreds now of ways in which i know from monitoring mother's sleep physiology her brain waves i know what stage of sleep she is in and i have seen on videotapes and on the polygraphic record that we keep and have for all the mothers and babies that have co-slept We've seen that ability for her to respond to something that isn't normal. Think of yourself and all of us when we're in bed. I mean, suppose you smell smoke, you wake right up, right? Or you would theoretically, and you do have the capacity to do that. And you don't roll out of bed every night. Um, You, you, you know, there's like all human activities and biologic systems there, nothing is perfect. You know, there'll always be that, huge exception to the rule but you don't begin in this conversation to begin with assuming some pathology that a mother is in unable to protect and respond to her most precious object that she will ever have in her life biology too has sculpted and designed mother's sensitivities to be able to hear respond and not to hear and respond to their babies um th- And maybe just to end that little segment there, think of yourself the night before you have to get up at four thirty or three thirty in the morning, and you go to bed. You don't have a very good sleep because you're constantly monitoring. Oh my gosh, I got to get up! I got to get up! You know. So I remind people of that, and and with that, the empirical evidence that I have seen, and others that are doing these kinds of studies, uh, Sally Baddocks and Helen Ball, that have also monitored physiologically mothers and babies, et cetera.
0: Well, and I I do, um, in your book, you do mention how there are some conditions that could hinder the safety. So we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about that. Um, and also, how did we get in this mess of and being so far removed from the recommendation being of, you know, responding or putting those needs as the priority? We'll be right back. And we are back talking with Dr. Jim McKenna about uh, James McKenna. I call him Jim, though. Oh,
1: he gave me permission.
0: Me. He gave I like permission. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, about baby sleep, infant sleep, and and the breast sleeping, basically, which is a, a term that you've recently coined yeah. to respond to this biological imperative, where it's really hard to separate the bed sharing from the breastfeeding, and so you've got breast sleeping. Um, But we should say, you know, in your studies, you've seen this response. However, when parents are thinking, well, what's the environment that my baby, that I should consider for where my baby sleep? What are some things they need to consider? Um, Because in my mind, I'm thinking, this is really important and it works really great when people are breastfeeding, but what if they're not breastfeeding or what if something else is going on? So can we talk a little bit about what those conditions might be that would make this a a better choice?
1: So what we're talking about and throughout the entire book, I really constantly come back to remind parents about it's not inherently dangerous And in fact, the conversation should have been around not actually bed sharing itself or forms of co-sleeping itself, but the conditions within which it takes place. This is a critical factor. We know that mother-baby co-sleeping evolved is part of the universal feature that only Western industrialized people were the ones that thought something alternative was better than having your baby right next to you and indeed uh, uh, breastfeeding. So... um, We know, as is uh, shown by all of the studies, that actually when you're talking about safe sleep and what you should be aware of, that safe sleep and promoting it begins before the baby is born. And so far as the fact that smoking during your pregnancy diminishes the ability of the baby's brain to arouse, to arouse during its sleep, which is a critical adaptive uh, skill and talent. That babies are born with, unless a mother smoked during a pregnancy, and it diminishes the abilities of those cells to operate the way they should. And it increases the threshold required for the baby to awaken should it need to during an apnea or a breathing pause. So I always say that safe sleep begins with knowledge of maternal smoking if you you did smoke during your pregnancy, it's great to have your baby co-sleeping alongside you on a separate surface, but shouldn't really be in the bed just simply because of the chance that those arousal capacities of the babies aren't what they should be. That said, of course, breastfeeding is such a critical part of protecting a baby both in the short and the long run. Every week, there are new findings as to what the benefits are, including of course, homegrown antibodies to the very specific microenvironment the baby's being taken to after the baby leaves the hospital. Mother makes those little wonderful um, antibodies specific to her baby. And that's of course inherently protective um, for sure obviously in our world we can easily be desensitized by drugs and alcohol and or sedatives even legitimate medications and i include in this too um marijuana but which has about 13 percent of uh, women that are pregnant Um, at least one one research paper shown are are regularly smoking marijuana and we don't know what the negative effects of that are, but I would be assuming that they would diminish. They certainly wouldn't strengthen those abilities of the baby to arouse, et cetera. But nonetheless, uh, postnatally after the baby's born, um, it certainly is not a good idea to be lying next to your baby in any any way, except on a separate surface. Can we get back to that? Um, if you are in, somehow debilitated by that inherent ability to otherwise respond, Uh, to the baby. Smoking after birth as well would be uh, a reason not to bed share. Having other children in the bed, people don't realize, you know, their toddler might be lovingly, you know, uh, hugging the the little baby or the infant. So children should not be permitted in the bed. Um, Though I know sometimes it is necessary for people that don't have the ability for multiple beds in that case, Um, someone else should be separating the toddler, you know, from being uh, next to the baby. Um, Putting your baby prone, which again was just another Western cultural invention, just to promote deep sleep for babies. And my research has shown that if um, you put babies prone to sleep, they sleep longer and harder. I used to say the problem-
0: So on on their bellies?
1: Yes, on their bellies. I used to say that the problem with solitary sleep is it causes babies to sleep too long, too hard, and too soon before they're ready to be able to handle the deeper sleep that comes with being two or three or four years of of age. Now I should have backed up a little bit earlier and suggested, and I think this is a question you would be getting at, um, what is the historical basis of how did we get into this situation where? our cultural ideologies and values had us depart so much from what would have otherwise been a, not even so much a decision, but a set of behaviors that unfolded, you know, breastfeed. Oh, you have to have the baby there. Oh, it's easier to have the baby close. Oh, the baby really likes it, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's really a shocking historical, um, set of processes. First, I think, a way to be dramatic about it but not inaccurate is to say that probably in the last century or two um, the greatest and worst social experiment untested social experiment ever done on human beings has been to separate babies from their mothers at night and more importantly what goes along with that separating them from breast milk and the experience of receiving that breast milk which of course Uh, gets back to that array of wonderful sweeping sensory engagements between the mother and the baby. No one intended any harm. When uh, formula came around, and gee, it goes back to the 1800s, you know, humans have always been looking for what's convenient. I certainly don't um, argue that, you know, energetic savings is always good and (laughs) breastfeeding isn't easy. And so formula was thought. Oh, wow, what a great, you know, 18th, 19th century invention. Let's do it. And so mothers had a little break there, but it ended up being a risk factor for sudden infant death syndrome because breastfeeding is relatively speaking, a protective, uh, behavior. Um, we came to value autonomy, separation, we wanted babies to become the all American individualist, you know, uh, self-sufficient, able to take care of itself, perfectly fine. But people began to just simply think the first doctors writing baby books says, ah, yeah, how to get that independence, that individuality, that self-security, etc., etc." Yes, let's start from the beginning, put babies in separate rooms as quickly as we possibly can to teach them how to be, you know, that, you know, independent, autonomous little creature that will be self-sufficient at some point. There were assumptions being made all over the place. One, the safety of that deep sleep was fine for babies, and it wasn't. Again, the prone sleep turned out to be a risk factor for SIDS. The taking away the breastfeeding itself, a risk factor for sudden infant death syndrome. And the engagement of the mother's body to that baby we know that that is a real uh factor a co-factor in babies dying because now we know that a baby's chances of dying if merely the baby is in the same room with the with the parent that baby has half the chance of dying from sudden infant death syndrome
0: well and is that why the American Academy of Pediatrics kind of went and met people halfway, <laughs> of saying, "Well, don't have them in a room far down the hall. Bring him into your room, but don't bring him into your bed." Like, right, right. right? right.
1: <laughs> I have to admit that was a historic, important statement to make, uh, the first of its kind. So I give them a credit for it. But to then assume that either the baby or the mother could be satisfied with the baby being somewhere other than where she is exactly the room sharing, that's what it's called, would work. Once you get that breastfeeding and once you have that baby and once you have that mother, it's not going to work because it's how the biological system is designed to operate.
0: You had a quote in the book. I was struck by it. It really resonated with me, so I wrote it down. It says, babies do not lie still and keep quiet when something is wrong or hurting them.
1: Yes. Yes absolutely they're
0: not as helpless as we think
1: yes i don't know whether you might have caught this but there was an experiment done in the 70s where they actually tested the newborn ability to fight against a obstruction to its breathing and these two investigators put cellophane over the baby's nose and mouth and
0: which i don't even know like how they Yes. Got yeah. to that point. But there it is.
1: <laughs> and I, they were two lovely people, I don't want to suggest, that they were doing this to, to really see and obviously they were trying to do it as safe as they could. But I'm not right. certain if mothers knew this was going to happen to their baby, uh, knew exactly what it was. I don't know who would probably approve. And they put cotton up the baby's noses. But what was so impressive and what I, I have this quote of what, how these babies, these newborns reacted. They did everything as newborns, shaking their head, back arching, batting at their head, batting, trying to bat at the stimulus, to the extent that the researcher says it would take two nurses to hold the baby down with the cellophane that's obviously blocking the baby in the airflow. But it is a very impressive quotation. And while I certainly wouldn't necessarily approve of all of doing this work, it is a a very valuable. Piece of information to see that these babies are not simply passively permitting their airways to be obstructed, that they are moving every part of their body possible to actually eliminate that. And not that, of course, I'm not suggesting that, oh yes, you know, it's a casual, bed sharing is casual. No, you have to have a mindset going in, baby on board, baby in bed. And I talked to this issue. And how that changes behavioral responses um, to um, babies when they're in trouble, or whether they're nudging, or they're too close to to their mothers. We have many, many infrared videotapes of mothers protecting their babies, and you know, pushing them away, rearranging their their physical position in the bed. Um, so we know that that is very much the normative pattern. Again, if you're desensitized by drugs, that kind of, uh, of sensitivity would, would be lacking. But I want to get back to the historical basis. It was really um, on different continents, physicians who really, I dare say, had little training in human development, certainly knew nothing about human infant biology from an evolutionary point of view. There was never any beginning empirical evidence whatsoever that supported the kinds of cultural dismantling that went on to change normative, universal, and species specific. That means how our species actually sleeps universally. Never any studies. These were just ideas that were promoted by people. You know, usually they were white men and I dare say they were for particular individuals I have in mind that really did not take care of their own babies. So you have a man that might've had children, but who had no experience with babies in the sense of the intimacy that comes obviously with breastfeeding, et cetera, that an experience that only women can have.
0: And it seems like there were even uh, um, assuming adult Sleep oh. goals for babies.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the whole notion, it was a cultural value, sleep, 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 you know, the good baby phenomenon. And I think that's just terrible. Um, I think what happened is uh, people started to think, well, if it's good for babies, then don't good babies do so, which is to say sleep through the night. And the moral caricature of the baby <laughs> was conflated with what was um. Perceived medical good that actually wasn't a good at all, because we know that separation of the baby contributed to the epidemic of sudden infant death syndrome, that was in fact primarily a Western industrialized society phenomenon. Most people in the world have absolutely no word uh, in their vocabulary, their lexicon, for a ba- healthy baby dying in the middle of the night from some mysterious ailment. I asked. maybe scores and scores of my anthropology friends, cultural anthropologists have, have you ever encountered this phenomenon um, of sudden infant death syndrome? Now that's not to say that babies can't die and do from a lot of sicknesses and ailments and malaria and and all of the major causes of of infants living in, in really impoverished environments around the world or difficult environments. But this particular description of the, the baby dying who was otherwise healthy, just can't, can't be found. Um, so it's always a surprise to Western folks and moms to hear, well, it isn't just that some cultures sleep with their babies. Overwhelmingly, most cultures in the world still remain. They don't even know there are those three questions to ask. Where will my baby sleep? What will I feed my baby? And how will I lay my baby down to sleep? That cultural dismantling of the three most fundamental issues was that scientific experiment that we didn't know was going on. And repeatedly and repeatedly, we were finding babies dying alone in cribs and rooms by themselves. And that idea of the normalcy of babies sleeping alone and the appropriateness of it is in evidence when you, you, you ask yourself, Why was it that even calling it crib death, why didn't it occur that it really might have had something to do with the crib? And as it turned out, it really wasn't the crib. It was where the crib was placed and used that turned out to be the killer. You could have a baby sleeping alongside the mother on a separate surface. That's that's co-sleeping. I never actually told you what co-sleeping is, but had and I done it. <laughs>
0: before we go, I do want to get into the, the definitions and clarify because I know a lot of people use co-sleeping and room sharing and, and interchangeably, and they're not quite that. But before we do that, let's take another quick break. We'll be right back. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? and the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started, and if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images, and let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. And sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments. Which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, You can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert built portfolio that fits you and your money goals then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier one compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors, LLC Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. And we are back talking about infant sleep and so let's clarify that. What is the meaning of co-sleeping and the different arrangements so we can use terminology that is clear? Like I'm very clear of what breast sleeping is.
1: <laughs>
0: um, yeah. Okay. What is co-sleeping? Yeah.
1: All right. It's not a complex uh, concept. First, let me begin by saying it's the universal form of human sleep for the human infant. And it refers to any situation actually within which the mother and the baby or someone committed to the, the, the baby as the primary caregiver sleeps within proximity that the mother and the baby can detect, can detect the cues and signals of the other. So it requires proximity and contact. I can assure you that there are probably as many ways to co-sleep as there are cultures doing it, which is in thousands. So, you know, it could be a baby in a hammock, as in Southeast Asia, babies sleep in a hammock with their mothers. In the South Pacific, babies sleep on hardened blankets, uh hardened platforms with with uh, blankets, and many, many people other than the mother alongside. Um, some babies sleep in cradle boards leaning against the mother's bed structure. And some babies sleep on the ground for many years. The aborigines did and derived uh, strength and uh, developmental skills from the ancestral spirits coming up through the ground into the baby's body. So I could tell you whatever materials and structures can be used to keep babies warm and comfortable around the world, they have. But the missing ingredient in Western society for over a hundred and hundred years or so has been missing the mother (laughs) and that we were perfectly willing to replace social ideologies and values unproven as they were um, with actually scientific evidence of of asking first and foremost if you want to know how human babies sleep first you have to know who the human infant is what are their characteristics what makes them different what makes them similar to other mammals. And had we begun with not where babies should sleep for ideological reasons, but begun with, okay, we want to know where babies sleep. Well, one way to do that is to look around the world and see what humans do with their babies, not to be just ethnocentric, looking at what your own culture does, because clearly ours departed <laughs> from that more normative human human pattern, but it would have been evident there. Um, Moreover, it was difficult and unlikely that proximity and contact would be maintained when formula came into the picture. And that obviously we didn't think that it might have any adverse effects or that it was really killing babies, and it was. And then of course, the final really high risk for babies, putting them prone simply to uh, assure that your baby would sleep through the night that would be more convenient for parents, but nobody asked whether it was good for the babies insofar as their sleep capacities and their arousal capacities are concerned. I go back to that expression: that solitary sleep and bottle feeding, you know, causes babies to sleep too long, too much sleep, too hard, meaning deep sleep, um, and you know, uh, in a way that, that really subjected them to this sudden infant death syndrome. And may I just add that I find it so ironic that um, crib death, as it was called, um, sudden infant death syndrome, um, people have now attributed uh, as a normative characteristic that a baby sleeping next to its mother as causing sudden infant death syndrome. This is absolutely not true. It's not the case that a SIDS cannot occur in a bed and mother doing everything right. But to jump to the conclusion that because it was in the bed and for our cultural history to assume therefore that mother killed her baby is patently untrue, patently cruel and needs to be challenged whenever you hear the assumption that a bed sharing death was necessarily preventable simply by changing location. And I think that is something worth thinking about how easy it is to attribute causation when the practice is challenging the norms. And that's what I talk about in the book, the 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 admixture, mixing up um, explanations that emerge for cultural reasons as opposed to emerging because they're true.
0: Well, and is that why we got to a place where right now everywhere you look, the mandate is to do the ABCs alone on their back, and um, always in their crib, so not in your bed. Um, How does that emerge?
1: Well, first of all, it's wrong uh, for reasons we've been talking about, but alone particularly. Um, That is not a safe infant sleep, even by standards of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Babies are not supposed to sleep alone. They're supposed to be sleeping alongside, at very least on a separate surface. That separate surface co-sleeping. That's terrific, that's good. The problem is the babies don't like to be on the separate surface, so they navigate themselves typically into, into the bed, but that's a different issue. Still, the babies are room sharing. <laughs> I like to point out that I can assure you it's not the inert walls that are protecting that baby in that room. It is what's going on when the baby's in the room between the baby and the caregiver. There's There's interventions, there's inspections there's there's touching Um, and of course the baby gets a little taste of that closer intimate proximity and the battle's sort of lost and i would like to raise the issue that what's happening or what happened is there's been such nasty rhetoric against bed sharing families that it's very difficult now for mothers to feel comfortable having conversations with their physicians as to where their baby really sleeps. The majority of mothers, 40 to 50% are lying about where their baby will spend the night. They might be answering partially true that the baby is at first put into the crib in the beginning of the night, but will forget or omit the fact that during the night the baby is relocated into the parent's bed. And a lot of times parents just answer where the baby's supposed to be. And that's easy to do. When you're waiting for your physician to give you a lecture about where your baby is, if he's or she is sleeping with you. So parents will say, Oh yes, we have a crib, my baby sleeps in the crib. And maybe the baby does, sometimes, but not primarily. So there the data now, always it's been there in the epidemiology, always was skewed against getting the proper numbers of the babies that were in bed with their parents that lived. So when you're doing these odd ratio statistics, which is but the epidemiology that always comes out, well, not always, but comes out with uh, risks of bed sharing. What is required, which isn't necessarily the case, are accurate numbers on the numbers of babies that actually were in the bed with their parents that lived because you're always looking at the proportion of babies doing one thing or another that lived compared with something else.
0: Right. And what you're saying is in terms of the um, research, we are not understanding how many babies are in bed, bed sharing that live. But also what I've seen is of the numbers that report babies that died bed sharing, they are also including because of the muddiness of the of the definition of the concept, which we still haven't gotten to, but we are, we're getting there. I keep interrupting um, that they're also taking into account people sharing, uh, so, uh, sleeping in a sofa and they're calling it bed sharing or that it was, the baby was sharing the bed with a pet and it's called bed sharing. So it's a blanket that doesn't, isn't really looking at exclusively the primary breastfeeding parent and the baby sharing a bed. Right. As the only things are included to this, babies died because of breast uh, bed sharing.
1: And this is a cultural issue, and it's unfortunate when pioneering studies that used electrophysiology um, first were able to monitor what happens when we fall asleep, babies particularly, and I'm talking about infants at this point, that the minute the doctors decided that the way you get normal human infant sleep is to put a baby bottle fed in a room by itself and sleep and turn on the machines. And essentially they didn't know it, but they were actually producing um, an example of an aberrant form of sleep for human infants, more time in stage four sleep, less arousal patterns, uh, no interruptions by virtue of contact, etc. Like babies just awaking because mom coughs or something like that, which is really important in part of the normative physiology. And it's a great example of science becoming one with the culture within which it was produced. Had they put a baby in bed with its mother, a breastfeeding mother, all of the numbers would have come out differently. The problem was that if you want your baby to have what was then called scientifically normal sleep, you had to replicate the conditions in which that data was collected. A solitary sleeping bottle fed the only way you could get the healthy, normal sleeping baby when it wasn't normal or healthy at all.
0: But and it was it, what the culture was prescribing at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that that's why it seemed normal.
1: Yeah, of course. And it's tenacious. You you hear people sometimes still to this day, oh, the baby was sleeping with the mother. Oh my gosh, isn't that dangerous? Well, it is not inherently dangerous it can be made dangerous as is true for so many things well obviously crib sleeping was made dangerous when you put the crib in a room by itself and you put a baby prone do you know that 300 to 500 thousand babies died from the cultural dismantling of those three components of normal human infant sleep we took away breastfeeding we took back sleeping away to promote sleep what was not good for babies, but maybe good for parents. And we took away the presence of a committed adult caregiver, which we know now are three protective aspects and are in fact constituent critical factors of understanding healthy normal sleep for the human infant. So thinking of of bed sharing is not inherently dangerous at all, but can be certainly made dangerous is a very different perspective And finally, just on these these issues, I'll say that there has been a lack of precision, as you are pointing out, Adriana, on, on what actually can kill the baby. We use a double standard to assess the causes and solutions to babies that die in bed versus babies that die in cribs. And I'll give you an example. If a baby was found dead, God forbid, in a crib sleeping prone, the cause of the death would have said to have been prone sleeping. The diagnosis would be sudden infant death syndrome and the solution would be let's use cribs more safely, put babies, you know, on their backs, take out all the debris, be very simple, put the baby's feet to the end of the crib so he doesn't move underneath the blanket, so on and so forth. If that same baby had died sleeping in a bed, sleeping prone with no other risk factor parent, the cause of the death would have said to have been bed sharing. The diagnosis would be likely a sudden unexpected death suggesting as it has come to be that the baby died in an asphyxial situation and the solution would be to eradicate bed sharing as opposed to looking at the characteristics the cofactors to see what is safe and what isn't and, right. it- and,
0: and, and where in that example the both situations as baby was prone and that probably was
1: Yes, the, that was the cause. The, oh. the
0: cause. Yes. But yeah, I get that you're in one way. And it's similar to what happens in birth as well. And we've strayed from if a baby dies in the hospital while well, you're in the hospital and you everybody did everything they could and right. it's nobody, you know, nobody's fault. Whereas if a baby dies at a home birth, well, then automatically it's your fault. You killed your baby.
1: Right. Yes. Um, without
0: going into the nuances of what really was happening. It's a, it's culturally pervasive for yeah. sure.
1: Yeah. And that's a very good analogy. I actually never thought about before that location is used as opposed to the very specifics that in many ways was in fact, what altogether caused the baby to die. And that's been such a frustration. Um, you know, during these 30 years of research, the tenacity, of these just false uh, assumptions. And, and of course, there. Uh, in my own work, I've met amazing people in Sid's research and in every domain. I'm not trying to question motives and, and such, but it's very difficult to shake the kind of historical place that we've been at. I think this is a bottom-up revolution what's happened. Our babies are sleeping. With their breastfeeding mothers, breast sleeping is a predominant form that our pediatric sleep researchers are going to have to accommodate and quit stigmatizing. And I need to mention the American Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I, along with colleagues Pete Blair, Helen Ball, Melissa Bartik, Kathleen Martinelli, and Lori Winter, we wrote a protocol now that is supporting safe breast sleeping or breast sleeping, which is by nature definition, safe, absent of risk cofactors for breastfeeding mothers, et cetera. And it is a paper that's been published. It's the most prestigious organization to support an informed choice for mothers to have their babies in bed with them, in bed sharing, and to breast sleep. So I'm very excited about that. Um, these are, uh, this is an organization that's the most knowledgeable in breastfeeding science and in, in many cases, uh, sleep issues itself.
0: And I'll make sure to link to that research on the show notes, um, as well as link to the book and link to a lot of the other things that we've talked about today. So when people are trying to determine what is the safest sleeping environment for their baby, and because I think one thing I really appreciated about your book, and if this is approach I use within the podcast as well as I believe that people are experts in themselves Mm -hmm. and they have to have the, we give them the information, the tagline of the podcast is inform your intuition. So um, in that sense, people only the people that have that are going to be putting the baby to sleep and caring for the baby know what their situation are, their nuanced uh, circumstances are, and what will work best for everyone. Um, because it's a family thing. It has to work for everyone. And whether they're breastfeeding or formula feeding, what are some of those things they need to take into account when deciding whether baby is going to be in their bed or baby is going to be you know, side card right next to them or in a crib in in their room. Um, how do they make that decision?
1: Well, first, I think you make a, a incredibly important point. Our history has disempowered women or probably all of us to feel that we could actually compete with experts, the quote experts and know our babies. But in the book, a very important sub theme is to to, an attempt to empower, to remind parents that the only power these other people, external authorities have over them is what they choose to give them. And I would remind them that they are going to know their baby better than anyone, their baby's idiosyncrasies and why the baby might be upset and what's going on. And we have not been very good as a culture to let parents know that you know they're pretty smart and they, they're, they're pretty committed to their babies. And it's not that one can't benefit from quote, the experts and having reasonably and re- mutually respectful conversations with physicians, but on this issue, this has not been possible. And that's why it's give rise to you know a whole huge number of Americans and Western people that are sleeping with their babies without any support. That are afraid to acknowledge it and to have a bi directional conversation with their pediatrician as to why their choice is to sleep with their baby and that they know what the risk factors are and they're able to, you know, ameliorate or get rid of them. So um, that is a beginning point. There's nothing wrong with following your instincts or telling you something. Instincts are not going to kill your baby. Um, You're going to use your knowledge as a cognizant person and you're a pretty Good authority yourself when it comes to your own infant. Again, and I think what the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine has done is to get rid of this stigmatization, to open up a dialogue, a respectful dialogue, not one that, oh, yes, I like your opinion. Isn't that great? But you're totally wrong. And so that's, I guess, another, you know, indirect point from our conversation that we need all the scientists we possibly can in fields to, to take on this sudden infant death syndrome and really understand what sleep is. Sleep is a cultural event. It's a social event. It's a relational event more than anything. But I think that it's very much time, and I hope my book will make some contribution to at least uh, provoking thought about what we have previously for at least a 100 years thought about where babies should sleep and do everything we can to research it, to make it as safe as is possible, because we have breastfeeding is back, thank God, because it's so beneficial at every level. We even think now that breast milk and the experience of breastfeeding and increased holding that comes along with it is having epigenetic effects at the level of the DNA itself. And I talk about that new research and the new neurobiology showing that the brain architecture is being determined by the physical conversations babies and mothers have in terms of where the neurons are traveling and that critical first three months of life. My gosh, you know, I get so excited about what questions could be asked, Adriana. So we have a lot to learn. And I think that to really come to grips with what evidence-based medicine really is, that we need to go back and read David Sackett and say it begins with the patient. It begins with what, in this case, mothers want, what they need, what they do. That's what evidence-based medicine is, beyond what science might even say, but clinical judgments in relationship to what the science says.
0: And people keep forgetting that evidence-based medicine has three prongs, and one of them is the own experiences and values of the the patient, the family, um, and to round up. So uh, one of the things I think we need to make sure people understand is in terms of changing expectations, we've got the changing of expectations of where babies should sleep, but also changing of expectations of how babies should sleep and that babies aren't meant to sleep through the night. They're supposed to wake up a lot. And you mentioned that at the beginning, but I wanted to come back to that because understand that yes babies are supposed to wake up a lot but if you are breast sleeping what you've shown and I'll just do like little little things from the book um that uh in that case the parents actually sleep more even though they wake they wake more times but they're not so aroused so that the time that they spend sort of awake is less so in overnight they sleep more time so When considering this, you're thinking, oh, my God, that's going to be up all night. You actually won't. (laughs) You'll wake up more, but you'll sleep a lot. And then in terms of considering what's the safest environment for their baby, we talked about protective mechanisms of not smoking, of not being impaired, of, you know, um, exclusive breastfeeding, right, of putting babies on their backs, And, um, there's also something about the surface that it should be firm Mm -hmm. without blankets. Um, you know, but I'm forgetting a couple,
1: just not other children in the bed. Um, and to make sure that objects around the bed have no spaces, you know, like pushing a mattress against the wall, you don't see it, but it could be pulling away and babies could get wedged or fall in them, particularly, um, non-breastfeeding babies. I found it difference between the breastfeeding babies they stay right underneath their mother's arm facing the mother almost all night whereas as others research has shown the, the bottle feeding bed sharing babies are moving around a lot more and that's where the spaces like a, a table next to the bed or or the headboard itself their spaces babies could could move around and move up toward the top of the bed where the breast sleeping babies will not be found because they're right there you know in View of the breast and, and the baby seeing the mother's uh, chest area.
0: Right, so, and those moving babies could get stuck. Yes, so if you're not having all of those conditions, would then the consideration be okay, it might not be the safest for my baby to be sleeping in the bed right next to me. Then I'm going to move you as close as possible, meaning that would be the co sleeping part, the separate surface yes. bed sharing.
1: Right. And and I think parents should be happy to know if if for whatever their reasons and there could be many that it isn't something they're comfortable with. Um, I think absolutely sleeping alongside um, on a separate surface is uh, protective of babies, and I, that certainly is a really great solution. And at least we're all agreed on that. It can be considered. Well, here's the thing. I thought a lot about this. Is the crib environment more stable? I think in part it is, the safe crib, but at the same time, mothers are intervening all night with their babies. So let's suppose the blankets do fall over the baby's head. The mother's very much more likely to be able to correct that. And I've watched that many, many times through the years with the numbers of studies we've done. Whereas if the blanket flips over on the baby in a crib, the baby is pretty much stuck with that. And I had a student that actually looked at that issue, um, the solitary sleeping baby and the interventions that can be helpful versus when the baby is in the crib and separate from from the parents. So... um,
0: Yeah, and understanding also that it's a mindset. You have to go into it uh, with the responsibility of we are doing this and I will be aware and responsive throughout the night. And whoever else is involved will also be responsive. Otherwise, if we can't commit to that, then we'll have baby, you know, close by or or determine what distance is right for you. And that might vary depending on the age of your child and it might go back and go back out and so forth.
1: And don't forget, parents, I mean, uh, a child's cognitive development has a lot to do with how it sleeps. You may think, you know, at, you know, maybe a month or two, oh my goodness, my baby's quote, almost sleeping through the night or whatever. don't be lulled into thinking that because the baby's cognition actually has us the baby think about and dream about things very differently. And the world can become very scary at six months that the baby wasn't able to really countenance or to consider at one month. So parents are calling this thing regression as if they're going back. Well, I guess they are, but they're actually coming forward. They're actually developing in an appropriate way because they know that the world isn't always a safe for kind place and they can be afraid appropriately and that's adaptive too, but they need their parents more. So don't look at it as their children going back. They're really developing and they're doing just as they should do. And, and they are feeling the emotions that draw them to their parents at the right time. So don't, don't I, I, it's just unnecessary to think that your baby, you know, not doing exactly what it should be doing.
0: Don't place judgment on it because they're always changing. Whenever, for good or for bad, whenever you think you've got it figured out, it's going to change. So
1: That <laughs> is absolutely it. right.
0: Thank you so very much for this wonderful talk. If people want to, you know, let's remind them about the book because I highly recommend it. Go check the book out. Um, and if they want to connect with you or follow what you're doing, is there a way they can do that?
1: Well, you know, sure. I'm pretty accessible through the internet. Just if you wrote James J. McKenna, it will take you to my mother-baby sleep laboratory. It's a website and I'm going to have these articles that I've been telling you about Academy of Breastfeeding that protocol for breast sleeping and, and or bed sharing. Uh, that will be a very uh, direct uh, guide for pediatricians and people in the health field written by six Experts in different areas of research in sudden infant death syndrome, infant sleep, and breastfeeding. And those articles, I hope, will be up online and they'll be free for you to, to take. And there's, you know, scores of other articles, there's interviews, uh, it's free. So the website, and then you could go into, into at the moment, uh, I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Notre Dame, and I know their website is up with my email, et cetera, and I'll be, I'm pretty accessible. You can call me at Santa Clara University if you need clarification or so, for sure.
0: Fantastic. And the book is called Safe Infant Sleep, Expert Answers to Your Co-Sleeping Questions. Thank you again, Jim, for this fantastic talk.
1: Thank you, Adrian. It was very much a pleasure and I really appreciate your very perceptive and wonderful comments and questions. So thank you. <laughs>
0: Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Sabrisky. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here's what Dr. McKenna had for breakfast.
1: Absolutely nothing, a cup of coffee. <laughs>
0: I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a Mighty Parent as they share their amazing story here at the Breathful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2020 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Mighty One.